The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, August 22nd, 2022, as the Chicago White Sox just wrapped up their trip to Cleveland that only featured two games. That's because on Sunday, The game was washed out due to rain, creating unplayable field conditions. That leaves the White Sox with a record of 62-59. and And they go on this weird four-game trip where they are playing in Kansas City on Monday afternoon. And then they are on their way to Baltimore for a three-game series against the Orioles. We'll preview those games and chat about the latest significant injury as Yasmani Grandal lands on the injured list and answer some of our Patreon supporter questions in P.O. Sox. First, let's talk about what we saw in Cleveland over the weekend. And a good place to start is gushing about Johnny Cueto. Joining me to discuss is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. On April 5th, three days before the new opening day because of the lockout, the White Sox signed Johnny Cueto because Lance Lynn got hurt. Cueto made his first start with the White Sox on May 16th. The team was 16-17 and 17 at that point. Now, the White Sox are only 9-9 nine and nine in games started by Cueto this season, but in this week against Houston and Cleveland, Cueto was phenomenal. And I'm not exactly sure where the White Sox would be without Johnny Cueto, which is odd to say. How has Cueto become arguably the second most dependable White Sox starter behind Dylan Cease? And someone who just outdueled Shane Bieber in Cleveland. Well, I think, you know, maybe the obvious answer is health. Like when he pitched for the Giants, like when he was healthy enough to pitch, he pitched all right. And yeah, I, I think, you know, part of you know the the rough stretches he went through is because he wasn't hundred percent. So, you know, knock on wood, he's been healthy. He's been yeah, the fastball has been what you want to see, 93, 94. And then he's been able to, you know, make every start. And, and I think, you know, I'm still most impressed this season by that five-inning emergency relief outing that he did on short notice. Against Texas? Yes. Michael Kopech start when, when he, in the, his knee popped and Cueto just shows up, 
gets you know roughed up a little bit early, but throws five innings, and then you know returns the rotation, you know, uh, and, and you know nothing's the matter. So it's been refreshing how low maintenance he is in a season where you know everybody has either something wrong or you know whether it's something you know clear cut in terms of injuries, illnesses, maybe not any illnesses, but also just some kind of performance issue that's been dragging on and on and, and, and with no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, Cueto has just been so easy to watch in so many ways. And I think it's just the, uh, you know, we talked about it before trying to figure out like what makes Lucas Giolito work or, or how can we get Lucas Giolito fixed if his Slider spin isn't great, and the fastball spin isn't great, and sticky stuff isn't going to be an option for him going forward. How do we fix him? How do we make his arsenal work? And Cueto's arsenal is basically throw everything at any time, in any location, uh, with any timing. And it's just, it's cool that he's able to do that. I think if, like, Giolito tried to incorporate hesitations or multiple leg kicks into one delivery, he'd probably topple over and throw the ball over the dugout just because of his frame his uh, balance that it takes and the athleticism and like Cueto just he's made himself work and I think you know it's a case where it's not a completely clean transition I think part of that you know his his struggles in San Francisco too were trying to figure out how to get old and, and and how to operate with less than his best stuff but the White Sox are uh, lucky to benefit from him having figured it out with another team and showing up and saying, oh, this is, as long as I'm healthy, as long as I can hit like 93, 94 with my fastball, even occasionally, I can do this because I have the entire plate and a couple inches off the strike zone every direction available to me. Yeah, I'm just looking at his stat cast data. When you, when you look at the stat cast data for Johnny Cueto, he doesn't generate a lot of whiffs at, like, at all. He's not posting big strikeout numbers, what he is posting that's so valuable for any major league team right now is just how many innings that Cueto is covering in each of his starts. This past week, eight innings against Houston, eight and two-thirds scoreless innings against Cleveland as Larusa went to Liam Hendricks for the final out to close out that win for the White Sox, shutting out Cleveland on Saturday, two to nothing. And Cueto has pitched more than six innings. And the only start that he didn't pitch more than six innings was on June 23rd against Baltimore, where he went five and a third innings in that start. In his relief appearance, relief appearance, he went five innings in relief. In the age of max effort and max velocity and max spin, it is amazing to me, Jim, how Cueto, in a way, is going like old school, as you mentioned, learning how to age, that I'm not the guy when I was with Cincinnati and Kansas City throwing in the upper 90s and just blowing by fastballs to opposing hitters, that he's just focusing on hitting targets that opposing hitters cannot drive those pitches. When you're just looking at his arsenal, as far as like the kitchen sink that he throws and the sluggy percentage and the expected sluggy percentage against the sinker, changeup, slider, and four-seam fastball, none of these expected slugging percentages on the fastballs is higher than 422. So even if hitters are putting the ball in play, they can't barrel up Cueto this year. They're having a difficult time doing so, even though he can pitch eight and two-thirds innings and only strike out two batters. I mean, this is kind of old-school pitching that we heard about growing up, Jim, and in a way... It's refreshing. I've been looking it up. I, I'm surprised that um, when 
I looked at Cueto's batted ball stats that he wasn't like top 10 in pop-up rate because that's something that jumped out to me was, I think it was, was it Andre Jimenez? He kept getting to swing at pitches like three inches, five inches above the zone, popping it up. Like he seemed to be able to like dial up the batted ball he needed to get. Ground ball, uh, double play opportunity. Let's see if I can get it. And fortunately, like Miles Straw was on the runner, so he couldn't quite turn it fast enough. But like it's a case where need a ground ball, cool. Uh, need a pop up. Got it. And so like when you look at his batted ball stats, nothing jumps out because normally I would think like, you know, if he if his strikeout rate is that iffy, if it seems like that much of a liability, you would think like, okay, he gets a lot of grounders or he gets a lot of pop ups or he gets a lot of soft contact. And it's like they're all true to extent, not the not the grounders, but like the the line drive rate is really low. The pop up rate is above average. The hard contact rate is, uh, I guess, below average for hitters, you know, above average for pitching performance, but like nothing's standing out. But I guess it's just the way he can get all these positive outcomes for a pitcher that aren't strikeouts when he needs to, or at least get enough of them in a row to where like there isn't a whole lot of traffic on the base paths, you know, and the walk rate, I think, is also in his favor. So like, you know, they need a sequence good at bats against them, tough at bats against them. And if they can't, then the occasional unlucky contact ball he allows for a single or a bloop double or what have you doesn't hurt yeah it's it's kind of fascinating he makes the white Sox defense look good and that is a feat in itself jim where hey the white Sox are turning double plays and gavin sheets looks like he could be an average right fielder when he's catching all these fly balls that are coming his way when johnny cueto's on the mound it's the, the white Sox had a big week and they end up just playing six games against the Astros and the Guardians. And Cueto came up huge, huge for the White Sox this week. For him to go two starts and cover more than eight innings in each of those starts, so covering 16 innings and not having to rely on the bullpen and giving the bullpen extra rest. I mean, that is just huge for a White Sox team that doesn't have a lot of days off upcoming, and they're going to have to burn one of those days off to make up a game in Cleveland. Like it's just not his personal results that he's getting. This is a very, he, he's really helping out the White Sox as a, an entire team. And even with his post game conferences as well, trying to get them going here and inspire them to play better baseball. I don't know where the White Sox would be without Johnny Cueto at this stage of the season. You mentioned the defense part, and that's the other thing that stands out to me is like uh, when you look at his pitch tempo on uh, StatCast, he's the fastest working starter by three seconds. Uh, three seconds? Yeah. Wow. Uh, with the bases empty, he throws a pitch every 15.7 seconds. Dylan Cease is the next active starter. Dallas Keuchel's there, but you know, not there anymore. But Cease is second at 18.6. So it's a little bit of the Mark Burley thing. We, you know, we heard so much about Dallas Keuchel being the next Mark Burley. Perhaps Johnny Cueto is the Mark Burley, just right-handed, just throws a little harder, uh, you know, different styles, different um, aesthetics, different Cueto's got the horse thing. He's got, you know, he's got the ambulance sound system. Like, you know, Cueto's got a couple of different gimmicks that uh, Burley doesn't have style-wise. But like in terms of the uh, veteran leadership in terms of easy, quick innings, like that's kind of the same purpose they thought Keuchel was going to serve. And basically, if you lump like Keuchel's salary and, and Cueto's salary, which is a prorated 4.2 million, like basically if you're paying Cueto like 22 million or I think it's like 21 million, maybe 21.5 or something like that when you add the prorated part of it, like 
Cueto's worth $21.5 million this year. Yes, he is. Like, he's worth he's worth what Keuchel's making and then some. So, I mean, like, he helps. It's almost like sawdust in a way. Like, you know, like, you know, from all the, the barf of, of uh, the Keuchel era, the end of the Keuchel era, just like Cueto comes up, cleans it up, and it's like it never happened. <laughs> and that's pretty cool. Vesta offseason edition came on April 5th, 2022, when Rick Hahn signed Johnny Cueto because Lance Lynn got hurt. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the uh, thing to me with with Lance Lynn. Like, you hope that the White Sox, you know, when they were trying to figure out how to fill out the rotation, provide depth, they talked to Cueto before they talked to Vince Velasquez, and it was more of a matter of numbers. And Cueto saying, "Well, you have Lynn, Kopech, uh, Keuchel, Cease, Giolito. I don't see a spot for me. I'm gonna wait because I want to, you know, I want a job where I don't, you know." I can get into shape and eventually hold down the spot the rest of the season. I don't want to, you know, have to compete every time and out for a, uh, you know, a rotation spot. I've worked too hard for this. It's not a matter of like, well, we thought Vince Velasquez had more upside than Johnny Cueto at this point. So we liked Velasquez more. So I'm, I'm really hoping that's the case. And Cueto was just really searching for the right opportunity and not so much a matter of the White Sox took till April 5th to get around to talking to him. If that is the case for the White Sox, make sure that does not become public yes (laughs) (laughs) speaking of lance lynn lance lynn was also very good against cleveland this past weekend but the white Sox blew game one late as lance lynn it appeared that he was regaining some of his lost velocity because of his knee injury he's racking up strikeouts early in that game he gave up one run which was a solo home run to jose ramirez but he only gave up one run through six innings and the steak dinner bet update, Lance Lynn's up to a 75 ERA plus on baseball reference. He still has a long way to go to win me a steak dinner. But in the month of August, Lynn has a 3.04 ERA and four starts. He's covered 23 and two thirds innings. He's only allowed 21 hits with 20, 26 strikeouts. And most impressively, he's only walked two batters in his last four starts. So Jim... Is Lance Lynn rounding back to his old form prior to the knee injury? Old form as in Cy Young finisher, maybe not. But old form in terms of like a credible mid-rotation option who you never mind seeing take a turn. I I think that's the guy he is right now. I think the walks, I think, or the lack of walks can be a good and bad thing depending on like how he's throwing. Because sometimes if he miss over the plates... You know, and you're throwing 93, 94, and they can anticipate some fashion of fastball coming uh, over the plate. Sometimes, you know, you'd rather see a guy like that walk a, a few more guys over the course of a month just because that means that the misses are good rather than two fats. But I think the command has improved for him to where, like, he is back to, like we talked about with Cueto, making hitters earn everything, uh, batter after batter. And we saw a little bit of frustration on his part. Was it, it was the Josh Harrison error, I believe, the sinking liner that got past Harrison, like under mm-hmm. his mitten in the right field. And Harrison's uh, defense, I think, is, yeah, his game seems like it's kind of falling apart right now. I don't know if you've noticed that or if it's a case where, you know, he's just the medium contact is slumping and he's made a couple, you know, mistakes in the field. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if, like, we're starting to see, like, a Harrison pass the point of no return and could really use some help at second base when shortstop's already ruined. But, you know, he, ex- he expressed some frustration there, and I think there is a matter of, like, he still needs help uh, from the defense. He still needs, like, a good effort to make sure that he can get through six uh, because, you know, maybe his stuff isn't the best or maybe, like, the 
stamina isn't all the way there and you know he might be susceptible more to third time through t-top etc to where those errors hurt more but otherwise you know i think if we're talking postseason rotation it's season quato at some point and then you know right now i think it's either you know Leonard kopek is a good toss-up just because kopek is so good at suppressing hits it's just more of a matter of like what form will kopek represent at the end of the season given the workload whereas i think lynn i think the more he pitches the better he'll be Versus with Kopech, I think it's the more he pitches, I don't know, just because this is all new territory for him, and uh, we'll see how he responds to the grind. It's just impressive that the two guys in their mid-30s had really big starts for the White Sox this week. Hopefully, these good vibes continue for both Johnny Cueto and Lance Lynn, because with their efforts, it makes it so the White Sox offense that has been underachieving and just aggravating to watch at this point, it makes it possible to treat every game that, yeah, the White Sox can win 3-2 to two today. The offense could win a game by only scoring two runs because of the way that Lance Lynn and Johnny Cueto and Dylan Cease uh, have been pitching for the White Sox. All right, let's talk about the bad decisions. We've held this off. Lot it off, Jim. Another intentional walk Mm. on a one-two count with two outs. We saw it again. This is the second time. So I went to StatHead, which is the research module on BaseballReference.com. You can like look up every play since 1915. And I only went back in the last decade because I wanted to know how many batters in the last 10 years, Jim, were intentionally walked when they had Two strikes on them. It has happened four times. Two of those four times have happened this season. So prior to 2022, it has happened only two times in the last nine seasons. Thanks to Tony La Russa, that has doubled. And it's happened just four times in the last decade. Now, if you're curious on what those other times were, on April 3rd, with the Rockies at Dodgers, Michael Givens got ahead of Corey Seager through a wild pitch runner advanced to second base, walked Corey Seager. They got burned on that call because Chris Taylor ended up hitting the RBI single to extend the Dodgers lead did not work out. Steven Matz threw a wild pitch back in 2019 against Miguel Rojas runner advanced to second base. This is in the fourth inning And the Mets decide to intentionally walk Miguel Rojas, the next batter against Steven Matz, gives up a base hit. So it's not like this strategy doesn't really work. And what's fascinating to me, from 2012 to 2018, we did not see this. We have not seen this. And we've seen it three times in the last two seasons and twice with Tony La Russa's manager. So I'm not going to say it's this like new way of micromanaging a baseball game because clearly that's not the case based on the data and the events. But the fact in the last decade, this has only happened four times and two of them have happened in this season suggests that nobody else in Major League Baseball thinks like this or it's it's a good idea because you usually don't get a good result in the next batter. And Tony La Russa is still defensive about this decision, Jim. So now I'm just assuming we're going to see this one more time because La Russa believes this is the right way to manage a game. The thing that strikes me is that, you know, we heard so much about observational analytics and that, you know, La Russa uh, 
doesn't let the numbers dictate who he is. But then like sometimes he really lets these bizarre numbers dictate what he does. Like it's the worst possible presentation of splits. Like remember how you'd hear like, oh, you know what analytics is? Oh, it's this guy. He hits 400 on a Tuesday after eating a Cobb salad. <laughs> you can, you could turn anything into stats. And like, that's kind of what it reminds me of him doing is just like, you know, taking up this you know, very minor split that can be subject to weird variations. But, you know, when you look at the league tendencies, you know, the, the entire body of work from baseball year after year, realize like, oh, the pitcher ahead in the count, that's a huge advantage for the pitcher. Otherwise, pitchers wouldn't care about the first pitch strike or being ahead 1-2 versus 2-1. Like theory, practice, and baseball, it's been proven year after year after year about like pitcher ahead in the count, good for the pitcher. Hitter ahead in the count, good for the hitter. And like to throw it all away twice just because like just of one split uh, is really weird. And, and, you know, it was weird the first time is less weird the second time because we heard the rationale. We could kind of map it out from what he said it was the first time, the second time. But it really seems like any decision he makes or like, I guess he'll admit when he did something wrong, like if you that that's a period of time where like he left Matt Foster in too long and he left Lucas Giolito in too long. And he admitted that he handled the game poorly and the same thing like Liam Hendricks, like he admitted those were mistakes, but he never admitted that the intentional walk on one, two was a mistake or even like the faintest possibility of being second guessable. Like his reaction was, Oh, I'm going to walk Trey Turner when I had the chance. Who wouldn't walk Trey Turner when he had the chance. And like when he does that, you realize like, Oh, he really means it like this is something like this is a core tenant. This is something he feels in his bones and he might do it again just to reaffirm how much he believed in doing it the first time. And that feels uh, like a, a warped set of priorities, but yeah, it's just, it's weird following him and, and weird is probably the wrong term. Like it's, or, or maybe too soft of a term really strange. Like when we were on the, uh, uh, Astros podcast, the Bleacher Blums podcast with uh, Jeff Blum and David Tuttle. And, uh, they spent a lot of time just poking our brains about like what it's like to follow a Tony La Russa team. And this is before the second intentional walk on a one-two count. Like if this happened, uh, the series before the Astros series, like the, the entire segment would have been about why is Tony La Russa uh, the way that he is? Like it's, you know, the Michael Scott to Toby line. Why are you the way that you are? <laughs> like that's, that's kind of what it comes down to. And just... I don't want to be inside his brain. Like it's a bad way to follow the White Sox dissecting and, and analyzing his decisions. It's like, it's not fun. It's not fruitful. You're not going to change his mind. So I'd rather talk about anything else. And he doesn't allow us to talk about anything else. Like even the case where like, you know, they, they there was that storyline of the fan telling him to pinch run for Adam Engel. And you know, my, my reaction was like, Oh, come on. And not because like, the fan told him to do it, but more like just because the wheels turn so slowly and the decision-making is so questionable and he came out of the dugout so late as Jose Abreu was already in the box ready to take the pitch that like it allows for the possibility that somebody could fill in the blanks for him because, you know, things are just, he processes the game in a completely counterintuitive way or a slower way or just a, you know, a way that um, confuses everybody and oftentimes has no payoff. And it's just like, I just want it to be done. Like I'm really hoping whatever happens this year that postseason or not, 
I really hope like you know, the postseason isn't what determines whether Tony Larusa keeps his job. I really hope it's just a matter of like everybody's seen enough. Everybody knows that like he's not going to get better a year older. Uh, it's it, it's probably only going to get worse. Kind of like Hawk Harrelson in the booth. Like yeah, I thought the White Sox did a very good job managing Hawk Harrelson's end of his uh, you know career and just you know phasing him out or transitioning to a new booth. Like they did a very nice job with it. Just knowing that like. Unless the White Sox get really good, like 110 win good, Hawk Harrelson's not going to get better. It, you know, the downsides could get worse. I think it's it's the same kind of conversation with Larusa. Just like when you see how stubborn he is about certain things and how much he fixates on not being wrong in in these decisions, where like the entire baseball media and fans are just like wondering what the hell he's doing. Like I don't think that's going to get better a year from now. And his effect on the team could just get worse, especially if the coaching staff stays largely the same. I just looked up in the course of Tony La Russa as manager during his times in Oakland and in St. Louis. With the St. Louis Cardinals, only four times out of all the years that he coached, managed with the Cardinals from 1996 to 2011, only four instances where a Cardinals pitcher on 2-2 Larusa called for an intentional walk. No instances where the count was one and two and called for the intentional walk. In Oakland, only once. And that was back in 1995 on August 9th with Kirby Puckett batting. And the pitcher at that time, Mark Aker, balked the runner from first to second. And on one two, Larusa called for an intentional walk to put Kirby Puckett on the on on first base. So, this is some type of new phenomenon that Tony Larusa is implementing. And I could go from when he took the Oakland job in what 1986, all the way through 2011, all of those games that you managed, only six times you have attention call for the intentional walk. And back then, you actually had to throw the pitches. It wasn't automatic. So why all of a sudden in 2022 is this some like newfound strategy that you were implementing? And when you harken back, we're like, well, I used to do this when Jim Tomey was at the Phillies. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Thanks to baseball reference, we have every single moment that you ever managed in a baseball game. And again, the only other time before 2022 that I could find such an instance that we have seen twice this season was back in 1995 in LaRusse's last season managing the Oakland Athletics. I am dumbfounded on why this is even a strategy. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know why he's defensive. It makes me question his baseball acumen. And yeah, I'm with you, Jim. I I am looking forward to the day that Tony Russa is no longer the manager of the Chicago White Sox. And with our luck, he'll become a special advisor to Jerry Reinsdorf and make significant decisions on how the upcoming offseason operates anyways with roster construction. And we all know how terrible he's at that with that type of task. Yeah, it's just just awful. I'm also tired of Tony Russa. So there's that bad decision. The second bad decision, 
Yasmani Grandal getting sent home on a single from Elvis Andrews that barely got through the infield. And if it's anyone else in the Chicago White Sox, they score on that play. But Yasmani Grandal is not like anyone else. He's a very bad base runner. And in combination of being a very bad base runner, he's one of the slowest players in Major League Baseball. But Joe McEwing sent him, throw, easily beat Grandal to the plate, and in trying to be somewhat athletic, Grandal was making a maneuver to go inside the baseline, got called out, and then his knee buckled on him. Now, the good news is, is that he did not tear his ACL because that's what it looked like as he was screaming in pain, holding his knee, was that Grandal suffered a significant knee injury. Instead, the White Sox, after a medical scan, it's a left knee strain for Grandal dodged a major bullet because there would have been huge 2023 implications if it was a torn ACL and Grandal is expected to be out just 10 to 14 days. And now Carlos Perez is being called up from Charlotte. Joe McEwing is very aggressive. He was very aggressive to begin the season. And we had a lot of conversations about Joe McEwing sends. And I, as I would say in the first half of the season, it's been quiet Joe McEwing and us judging his sense has been quiet because I think he's done a better job as far as sending players to home plate. But when he sent and he's waving his arm around for Yasmati Grandal, even if Grandal, again, a poor base runner and he's looking back when he shouldn't be looking back and should just trust Joe McEwing. I don't know. Should White Sox base runners trust Joe McEwing uh, during this season? Uh, I just think that this is a, a another flaw in the resume for Joe McEwing, and somebody else has to be the third base coach in 2023. Uh, your thoughts about Grandal's injury, Jim? And uh, I guess uh, we get to see Carlos Perez now. Grandal is the slowest player in baseball, according to sprint speed. He has fallen behind Yadier Molina, so he is oh, now... there you go. Out of 527 players, he is 527th in sprint speed. He is... Also dead last in home plate to first base time, um, 5.26 seconds. Uh, next up is Robinson Torinos, 5.15. So a tenth of a second slower than the next uh, slowest player. So yeah, that's Grandal right now. It was a bad decision, and it seems like, to me, we hadn't seen McEwing make a call like this, but after all of these... Uh, and it seems like there's been a cluster of White Sox failures with the runner on third and nobody out with one out. Like they've been, it's been rough all season. Um, you know, bases loaded has been rough, but it seems like there's been a cluster of it as of late. And so I'm not sure if that's what informed LaRusse, uh, sorry, McEwing's thinking. It certainly informed uh, LaRusse's defense of McEwing afterwards saying like, you know, that runs have been hard to come by. So we need to make it happen. However, but just when you add in all the things like where he was, who he was running on, like Miles Straw has a good arm. The fact that the turf was wet, maybe that factored into his thought like, well, the ball's going to be wet when Straw gets it. So his throw could be terrible. Uh, but also if the turf is wet, if the, you know, dirt is, you know, a, an issue like around home plate, like with a guy like knee problems, like you know, having have to make any kind of sudden moves, stops, weird slides, like that's not the best thing for him. So when you add it up, it's just like getting him hurt is a big deal. Like that's a case where like it, it's you're putting the player at risk because of the potential of failure of the next two to three batters. Like that's, that's the issue to me is like, you're, you're already 
projecting failure of the teammates. So you're putting this player at risk and, and making him do something he can't because you're afraid that you know other players won't be able to do the things they're be, supposed to be able to do. It strikes me as reckless. It strikes me as a bad move. And we just saw Larusa issue a strenuous defensive McEwing. And given that uh, you know McEwing was one of Larusa's favorite ever players, I can't count on him going anywhere. Uh, McEwing going anywhere if Larusa is retained. So you know, I've said it before, Daryl Boston, Joe McEwing, having survived three managers and and not really having a good idea of what they do for this team. Like I just rather see change for the sake of change at this point. And having this kind of situation where a player gets injured because of a decision he makes, like this is good enough reason as any to final strike against him and just turn the page after the season. I mean, he doesn't need to be the third base coach. I mean, make him your bench coach. He was the bench coach for Rick Renteria. Yeah. And then they put <laughs> yeah. him at third base. And I just don't want to see him anywhere. Like, he's been Robin Ventura, Rick Renteria, Tony La Russa, Like why? I, it's like the opposite of brain drain. You want to be in a position where teams hire your people away because that means you're hiring well and they bring good ideas to the table. Uh, when the White Sox keep you know running back the same staff year after year, and we keep seeing uninspiring results in their jurisdictions, you know, outfield defense, base running, positioning, etc. Like, let's just try somebody else. You know, those are valuable jobs. A lot of people want them. A lot of people uh, are strivers who want to make a difference with them. Uh, let's see what they can do. We did get this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Andrew Siegel. And Andrew wrote to us, in a strange sort of way, have the White Sox upgraded at catcher and shortstop? Not catcher. I would say like shortstop Elvis Andrews over Larry Garcia, especially Garcia who couldn't really swing the bat with his legs. Um, you couldn't put any lower body into a swing. Like, yes, that's an upgrade. And uh, Sox are very lucky, you know, very fortunate, a little bit along the lines of Cueto, except like an August version of it. So we'll see if he can make a similar impact. He's already done a couple cool things. The tag at second base and then stealing third and, and breaking for home on the throwing error that wasn't, you know, they required fast reflexes and a good idea of just uh, timing and space of a play, you know, making that happen. Like so far, the early returns on just veteran know-how and experience are paying off pretty well. So knock on wood, but good starts. Uh, catcher, I don't want to put too much on Carlos Perez's play right now, nor Sebi Zavala's, because Zavala has struck out in half of his August plate appearances so far this year. Or sorry, sorry, so far this month. And I was a little bit concerned, like overexposure for him could be a problem because we've seen these strikeout binges in the past. And with Perez, he's somebody who makes a lot of contact, Power was slow to come to him. It's come to him as of late. Like now he hits for some power, a little bit of power. Uh, Charlotte, I think, can warp his numbers a little bit, but he can hit maybe double-digit homers in a year if he did start like 120 games behind the plate in the majors. Like that's possible, but he also has a history of like, you know, not hitting for power for certain stretches. And you could see like a case where um, major league pitchers just knock the bat out of his hand for a year or two until he gets acclimated until he finds out what pitches he can drive until he starts like getting a better idea of the count. Maybe he has to strike out a little bit more. Like he has to, uh, figure out like, you know, it's okay if I return in the dugout occasionally, because that means that I'm swinging with more intent or I'm waiting for my pitch. It could take him a while to figure it out, but I could see a situation where he hits like an empty 150 and he doesn't add all that much. And, you know, I, I tweeted out before Grandal got hurt that like after Gavin Sheets came through with the double, just saying like, you know, he, you know, Gavin Sheets should be the DH. Like, Grandal should never be the DH on this team between Vaughn, Sheets, and Jimenez. 
all of them need the time there to where like Grandal shouldn't occupy that spot. And I got a bunch of people saying like, well, Grandal shouldn't play anywhere. And like, no, that's not the case. Like if you, if you had him catch half the games and bat a eighth, you wouldn't care. Just like most teams have bad catchers. There's a, a drought of credible starting catchers around the league. So play him half the time, bat a eighth, forget what he's making. You can get by with him. And I think, you know, Perez, you know, I'm hoping it's not the case because, you know, there's a chance he could, you know, be an okay contributor at the plate. But I don't want to count on Perez having to do more than Grandal just because he's a rookie. He's a rookie with uh, uh, certain flaws. And, you know, he's going to have to take a bit of time to figure out how to mask those in the majors. So I wouldn't call him an upgrade. There's a possibility like you can get by with some weird small sample size to where he bats 300 because of the contact he's making falls in. Uh, but I could, you know, also see the inverse getting, being the case to where just, he hits like a bunch of weak ground outs and pop outs and Zavala strikes out half the time and catchers a mess. So shortstop, yes, catcher. I'm inclined to say it's kind of a net, net zero at this point. Um, you know, kind of cancels out and, and the flaws of one, uh, will be, maybe you'll be refreshed by Perez having a different set of flaws than Grandal. Yeah. We'll see what Carlos Perez provides. Tony LaRusa did tell the media that the idea is, to go two games with Seve Zavala and then Perez catching the third game and go back and forth until Yasmati Grandal bounces back from his injury. So that's the weekend in Cleveland for the Chicago White Sox as they split the two games and the third game got rained out. Jim and I will take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but coming up next, we take a look at the American League playoff picture and the White Sox upcoming games in Kansas City and Baltimore. You are probably drinking coffee while listening to this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. And if you do love coffee, I highly encourage you to visit drinktrade.com slash Sox Machine. Trade Coffee sends you freshly roasted beans from 60 of the country's best craft roasters, small businesses who pay farmers fair prices to sustainably source the greatest coffee beans from around the world. Whether your friends call you a coffee snob or if you're like me, you're just getting into coffee, Trade's real coffee experts personally taste test over 450 roasts so they know exactly what to recommend to you. All you have to do is just take the coffee quiz, which is fun. You answer a couple of questions and you'll get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like. No gimmicks. Trade delivers a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground for however you brew it at home, depending on the equipment that you have. And they guarantee that you'll love your first order or they'll replace it for free. Trade has delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee with more than 750,000 positive reviews. So right now, while you're drinking your coffee, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash machine. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Again, get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash machine and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash machine for $30 off. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. A look at the American League playoff picture Again, the Houston Astros would be the number one seed with a 78-45 record. The New York Yankees finally won a game. They are now 74-48. They would be the number two seed. Cleveland, still leading the American League Central, would be the number third seed. Tampa Bay, Toronto, Seattle are tied 
<laughs> for the fourth, fifth, and sixth seeds, followed by the Minnesota Twins at they are two and a half games back of those three. Baltimore is also there in the pile, along with the Chicago White Sox. And when you're looking at this upcoming week, looking at the American League Central teams, the Minnesota Twins, they have one game on Monday against the Texas Rangers. And the Twins are having a terrible time against the Rangers this weekend at home. That's a bit of a surprise. It doesn't get any easier for Minnesota because after that game, they have to travel to Houston to face the Astros Tuesday through Thursday. So if you're looking for the Twins to kind of fall back to the White Sox or the White Sox to pass the Minnesota Twins in the standings, that might happen this upcoming week. After the series against Houston, the Twins have to get back to Minneapolis for a three-game series against the San Francisco Giants. Meanwhile, the Guardians have Monday off. They head to San Diego for a Tuesday-Wednesday series. And after San Diego, they have to go up to Seattle to face the Mariners. So that's a West Coast road trip for the Guardians. We'll see on how they handle that trip. The San Diego Padres remind me a lot of the Chicago White Sox right now. Good pitching, cannot score. Their offense is terrible. Not sure what is going on in San Diego and try to score runs, but that'll be an interesting series between the Guardians and Padres. And of course, the White Sox, meanwhile, this week, one game in Kansas City, three games in Baltimore, and they come home for three games against the Arizona Diamondbacks. So if you compare those schedules of the three teams, in my opinion, the White Sox have it the easiest this upcoming week. Your pitching probables for the Monday through Thursday part. So again, Monday, this game's at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, and it appears that weather has cleared up in Kansas City, so this afternoon tilt should happen. It's going to be Michael Kopech on the mound, even though Dylan Cease was slotted to start on Sunday. He's been bumped to Tuesday. It's Kopech against Daniel Lynch. So focusing on this game, which some people might be listening to this podcast episode, as the White Sox are playing the Kansas City Royals gym. Can the White Sox hit Daniel Lynch? Because my Lord, they have not been able to the last couple of times. Yeah, I mean, like this whole week or this whole first half of the week in between our full episodes is, can they hit this guy? I mean, Lynch, <laughs> they haven't hit like Austin Voth, like going into the Orioles series. Like they, you know, the Orioles, they only got 24 hits off them in 35 innings. Uh when they played him over four games the last time around. So like Voth didn't hit Spencer Watkins didn't really hit Jordan Lyles. They, they hit him a little bit, scored four runs off him in seven innings, but Lyles is the league leader in hits allowed this year. He's given up uh, 150 something and the White Sox only got six over seven innings. So, you know, that's kind of the big question here. I mean, this is a good cross section of starters to face like a lefty who's befuddled them righties with not overpowering stuff. Like, Eventually, they're going to, have to solve these guys to some kind of degree in order for it to work. But um, to start with Lynch, yeah, just like lefties should be, you know, a strength of theirs. I think, you know, uh, Andrews is somebody who's been hitting lefties better than righties. So, you know, maybe he'll help out here. But yeah, just a lot of weak pop ups to the right side. Like, and, and we're not seeing like the, uh, you know, authoritative contact to the pole field like we saw uh, last year. Like, you know, I don't know about you, like when it comes to fly balls, right of center, left of center, depending on who's hitting them, I don't have hopes for him. Like my hopes have kind of died. Like Grandal, yeah, I think LaRusse pointed, he's saying he's making better contact. And in terms of launch angle, velocity, like it's okay, but it's to the opposite field. And anytime, you know, anything's hit reasonably well, the opposite field, 
unless it stands a chance of like splitting a gap to where outfielders can't get it. If it stays in the park or like if it's a case where the outfielder is close enough, I don't count on it getting to the wall fast enough to make a difference. Like it just seems like opposite field power uh, or contact is not being rewarded. So as long as they are just hitting the ball that way, it feels like it's going to be like singles and doubles and hoping to stitch them together. Yeah, I agree. It's just not, it's not carrying to the opposite field at all. And so the White Sox, I mean, it's late August. We're still talking about this. The White Sox hitters have not made that adjustment to pull the ball more often. I mean, Aloy Hemmen has made some really good contact. He drove the ball to the wall against Shane Bieber, and it was a good swing, and Bieber threw an outside cutter, and that's really the only place that Aloy Jimenez could hit that type of pitch with authority, and it just died at the wall. Maybe last year, 2019, that probably goes 10 rows deep in right field uh, with the super bouncy ball. But yeah, the ball is just not carrying the opposite field, and the White Sox hitters, I don't know if they refuse to, but they just have not made that adjustment to pull the ball more in the air. Yeah, I think it's it's somewhat philosophical and also just part of their games. Like, you know, Abreu is not somebody who's made his entire career pulling the ball. Like, he's got a few different swings and makes contact to right field. Jimenez is all fields power. Like, hear a lot with Chris Getz talking about prospects and how their power is right center oriented. And I understand why that's impressive to him, because if you have the strength to hit the ball out to right center, that probably means you're pretty strong overall. Like, you're not counting on... Uh, getting a 20 homers with 345 foot fly balls inside the left field foul pole. And so I get what he means by it being an asset in, in reflective of strength. But when you see just, if this is going to be the trend where anything hit well, like 105 miles per hour to the right center gap dies at the warning track. Um, yeah. It's like, you better have some more walks then to at least, you know, have more runners on base to make those, those singles pay off when they show up because, uh, Right now, the runs are not coming in bunches because the ball isn't going out that way. So that's the game in Kansas City. And then after Kansas City, the White Sox have to hop back on a plane and they go to Baltimore. And your pitching problems for the Baltimore series. And these are all 6.05 p.m. Central Time starts. Tuesday night, it's Dylan Cease against Austin Voth. Wednesday night, it is Lucas Giolito against Spencer Watkins. Thursday night, it's Lance Lynn against Jordan Lyles at the Baltimore Orioles. When they visited the South Side, and I was hoping the White Sox to have a big weekend, a four-game home series against one of the worst teams in the American League. Baltimore was 32-39, and 39, last place in the American League East. Since June 23rd, after they won three out of four against the White Sox, Baltimore's 30-19. and 19. That's the third best record in the American League. So quick trivia question, Jim. Can you guess the other two teams in the American League who have a better record than Baltimore since June 23rd? Almost two months. Hmm. Guardians? No. Hmm. Wouldn't be somebody like the Rangers, would it? Nope. Uh, just trying to think of like some, some team that got off to a really awful start and then got back to normal. You're getting warmer, though. Mariners? That's one. They're okay. the number one team. They have the best record in the American League since June 23rd. If, if, we're, if I was going by geography with that Seattle guest, I would say you're getting cold after saying Texas warm. <laughs> so like the Rays? No. Houston. Houston. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. 
So poor Seattle. They have the best record in the American yeah. League since June 23rd. The second best record is the Houston Astros. Oh, yeah, that's, who, that's a bit too obvious. I was thinking of like the, yeah, I thought they were just so good that they couldn't have the possibly the best record because they've already had a great record. So right. I was thinking of the, you know, the teams that needed to regress positively to overcome a unimpressive start. Well, one of those teams is the White Sox. The White Sox have the fourth best record in the American League since June 23rd at 29 and 24. So the Baltimore Orioles in their last 10 games, four and six. So they're not as red hot as they were a few weeks ago. But again, they own the season series against the White Sox right now, three to one. So the White Sox are going to have to sweep the Orioles to win the season series against Baltimore. When talking about Baltimore... And when I watch Baltimore, the question that gets raised internally for me is, are these Orioles the next uprising team in the American League? Because we've seen Houston go from one of the the laughing stock of Major League Baseball to becoming a powerhouse. And then Baltimore in their rebuild effort decided to let's hire a bunch of Astros employees and I know it's a really tough division. It's a division that you can see some teams spend a lot of money and one of the best teams in baseball and player development in Tampa Bay. But I wonder if this is not a fluke, Jim, as far as this this rise that we're seeing from the Orioles. And I'm wondering if they are going to have a contention window starting next season. They could. I mean, like when you look at their lineup, it's a lineup with not a whole lot of name brand players like Adley Rutschman was obviously first overall pick and he looks great right now and looks every bit uh, worthy of that title. But up and down the lineup, I mean, they traded Trey Mancini, who was probably the other most identifiable Oriole offensively. And then you have you know, Santander. He's got some name recognition. Cedric Mullins had a really nice year last year, but Austin Hayes is like, you know, the third round pick, um, you know, they, they have uh, Mateo and Urias. Like, they're they're okay. Like, they just have really no weak spots in their lineup. Like, you know, at second base, looking at their uh, baseball reference page, like uh, Rugnet Odor has a 77 OPS plus. Like, he's a weak link, but everybody else is 94 or higher. Like, there aren't any, you know, it's, it's along the same lines of, like, the 2005 White Sox in terms of, like, they didn't beat you with, like, dominant performances they beat you with a lack of holes like they you know one through nine could beat you on any given day and the Orioles are kind of built that way I think the question to me is are they built uh in that fashion like is this going to be um a trademark of theirs to where they can find unimpressive talent or like you know kind of dig up other teams uh castoffs or players who are buried on depth charts and give them time and an opportunity and, and get some really valuable cheap years out of them? Or, uh, you know, are they good at the second day of the draft? Or is this like lucky and you're getting a whole bunch of adequate performances uh, from players who might not be able to st- sustain it going forward and next year might be a little bit of a disappointment because they don't have that kind of defining talent outside of Rutschman. That's kind of where I'm at with them right now. But I do think like I'm still fascinated by the decision for them to drop left field uh, back 30 feet. And it still has a massive impact on their splits. Like I'm looking at their home splits, uh, 344 ERA at home, 440 on the road, 53 homers allowed at home, 79 allowed on the road. So perhaps they're benefiting right now from like a lower run scoring environment that other teams, you know, either... Um, you have to figure out how to combat or maybe it's just a case where like they're lucky right now, but maybe the ball livens up next year and uh, that isn't so pronounced. But for the time being, like that's kind of what I'm looking for going into the series 
is the White Sox have, now I'm looking at their home run total here, they have one home run over the last six games. Like all week they hit one homer. And now they're going to a park that's been uh, butchered to not allow them. Like they, they carved out the entire, like it's still like drastic to me watching games, watching highlights from there, seeing fly balls left field. It's like, oh, I still think that wall is eight feet uh, high and 350, 60 feet away versus 370, 380. So that's, uh, you know, watching this, I guess that's one good thing for the White Sox that they don't hit, uh, they don't count on pole field power from their righties because this would be one series to where even if they did, it might result in a lot of deep outs. Yeah, well, that's what's new. <laughs> what's yeah. new watching the White Sox offense? I think they're going to, it really depends on this off season, but I see Baltimore being very active. Like I see them going after Carlos Correa because of the Houston connection or maybe Dansby Swanson. I mean, you have four outstanding shortstops that'll be free agents after this season, you know, throw in Xander Bogarts and then Trey Turner as well. But we'll see if the Dodgers allow Trey Turner to leave Los Angeles. Uh, They have no problem spending money. But I could see Baltimore being a realistic landing spot for one of those shortstops. I could see Baltimore being incredibly active on the starting pitching front. Maybe Carlos Rodon opts out and then he gets enticed by Baltimore at a four-year, five-year deal. And he goes back east and, and goes pitch for the, the Orioles. I, I think this season and this run is enough for the Orioles to buy into trying to be competitive in 2023. But I said the same thing about Detroit. They were very active to start the offseason before the lockout, not so active after the lockout. And obviously that's blown up in the face of the Tigers. and The GM got fired. I can see that. Um, I think, you know, just along the same lines of Detroit is like, I still don't exactly know what the ownership situation is like, you know, going from, you know, uh, Mike Illich to Chris Illich, going from Peter Angelos to, uh, I forget his son's name, but like that, there's a little bit of acrimony right now with, you know, who's yeah. They're suing each other, aren't they? Yeah. Yep. So that's one thing that kind of makes me think like, oh, maybe the pockets aren't going to open up immediately just because there is some infighting in the ownership ranks and they really didn't spend it all the past couple of years. And part of it is the Astros way, but also part of it could be like, they don't want to spend, they have, they're, they're too busy fighting each other to really invest in the product. So that's, uh, I can see them being a, uh, you know, an off season force, but I just don't know what to make of their ownership situation right now. Well, they're very fun to watch this season, and they're on quite a roll. So this is not going to be an easy series for the White Sox. (laughs) And it kind of reminds me of two of the Guardians just like watching the Guardians play the White Sox and, and, you know, seeing hustle versus not hustle or just seeing like a team that can give it all versus a team that can't or won't. Um, I think there was a similar series in the Baltimore dynamic, uh, with, with the series last time they played when it came to outfield defense versus the White Sox. So that is fresh in my mind still. And I think, you know, we talked about it with Houston and Cleveland, like Cleveland is kind of Houston light when it comes to how they play. Um, you know, just, they don't strike out. They pitch well. They have some good bullpen arms, not as talented as Houston, but in the same shape. Uh, and I think uh, the Orioles are a little bit of, um, have the guardians in them in terms of just like, they run like hell in the field on the base paths. And that can make a mess for a team that is either not used to handling that defensively or can't do it themselves offensively. 
Well, we'll be recapping that series on the next podcast between Jim and I in Sox Machine Live after the Thursday night game. We'll be hosting another watch party for the Tuesday night game to watch Dylan Cease go up against the Baltimore Orioles. It should be a fun four games here for the White Sox, but they still need to continue to stack wins as the schedule gets a bit tougher for both Minnesota and Cleveland this upcoming week. We are going to take another quick break, but coming after the break, we are going to be answering questions from our Patreon supporters in P.O. Sox. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast, and this is our favorite part of the show where our Patreon supporters get to take over. It's P.O. Sox, where our Patreon supporters get to submit questions and topics for us to answer. And if you would like to submit a question or topic in a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, you can sign up to become one of our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Machine. The first question comes from Juliet Orange Sox, Jim. And Juliet wrote to us, can you rank the following from bad to worse to worst? Third base coach, Joe McEwing, manager, Tony La Russa, hitting coach, Frank Menachino. I would say, well, I guess I'll do it reverse order. Worst to, uh, you know, least consequential. And I think I'd go Tony La Russa, probably Joe McEwing, then probably Frank Menachino. Like I say, probably just because when it comes to the hitting coach, like I think the hitting coach probably makes a bigger impact than like the third base coach or the bench coach. I just consider McEwing, I guess, more reflective of the way the White Sox are run and their inability to, you know, find, you know, I guess new coaches, good thinkers, uh, anybody they, you know, teams want to hire away. So I consider him more like kind of the result of stagnation and, and turnover and, and productive turnover in their coaching ranks. So, you know, Larusa I think is, you know, he's at the top just because if he doesn't go, I don't think McEwing goes and you're kind of stuck with both of them. And then who knows who else, you know, Manichino, I don't know how tied he is to Larusa. You know, he had a good year in 2020 and like he had some positive developments in 2021 this year. It's all falling apart. Like I think Frank, you know, Menachino is like, and also I, I guess when it comes to the discussion over hitting coaches, I don't know how big of a difference they make. Everybody like Menachino when he's at Charlotte and then he comes up and struggles. Now we're seeing the same thing with Chris Johnson at Charlotte saying like, maybe he should come up and then see the same thing that happens. So I don't really know about hitting coaches enough to like feel like, replacing one is going to produce results. So I think like replacing McEwing will at least show that the White Sox are serious about like turning over the coaching staff and examining like who really does what and who could do what better. I don't think any three should have a job with the White Sox in the coaching staff in 2023, 
but I'll go with Jim as well, Juliet. I'll say LaRusse is the worst, Manichino's worse, and Joe McEwing is bad. Thank you so much for your question, and thank you for your support, Juliet Orange Sox. Our next question comes from Gar Ridge, and Gar Ridge is asking, with Yasmani Grandal out, what's your preference for DH against a right-handed pitcher and DH against a left-handed pitcher? Well, right now it seems like Eloy Jimenez would be the first choice for both just because of you know his leg issue and him leaving the batter's box after a swing that didn't look all that bad, or maybe I'm just used to judging them against like Larry Garcia's swings to where he's collapsing every time he has to twist. So maybe that's why I didn't think anything was all that wrong with the way Jimenez swung the bat, but I think they're going to be managing his legs. And so I think he's going to be the primary DH. And so I think when it comes down to arranging the roster elsewhere, I think I'd rather see um, if possible, uh, Vaughn in left, you know, just because I don't really, I don't like seeing him in right field. I don't, He's not an asset there. Like if Jimenez can't play left field, Vaughn should be there for some reason against considerable odds. Somehow Gavin Sheets is a better right fielder than Andrew Vaughn. I would not have guessed that. I think in, uh, yeah, like if, if you gave me like, uh, you know, 20 simulated seasons, you know, maybe I could think like Sheets would break through in one of them, but I, I figured like Vaughn would just be better just because when you look at the shapes of them and, you know, uh, I think Sheets is the definition of like a plotter. Like, you know, his steps look very heavy and, you know, Vaughn's legs move quicker, but then you just look at the, which balls get caught and you look at the metrics kind of backing up the eye test and realize like, oh, like Sheets somehow, whether it's better positioning, whether it's, um, you know, just bigger frame. So maybe his reach helps him out a little bit more or, luck of the batted balls, but somehow like he gets to more, he catches more. So I guess like, I'd rather see uh Vaughn and left sheets and right. I want to say angle, but like he just hasn't really hit. He's been like a non-factor at the plates. And if he need runs and sheets is a, 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 you know, a better presence in the batter's box, I think you have to play him. Um, but I, I'm hoping at least Robert is like, Robert looked okay. Coming back. Uh, his at bats looked under control. He contributed a couple singles can run the bases well enough to score from first on a double. So you'd like seeing that. So I think as long as he can swing the bat functionally, I'd rather see Robert uh, in center, which I think could free up at least Pollock to play right. So that way mm. at least get more range in right field, even if he's not that greatest himself. Yeah, I think it's going to be Aloy this week for DH. But if Aloy was healthy, I would say Sheets to DH against right-handed pitching with Aloy playing left and Pollock in right. And then left-handed pitching, obviously Andrew Vaughn. But I think you need Andrew Vaughn in the lineup every day for the White Sox. And this is a good question, Garbage. It's it's not easy to put this puzzle together for the White Sox because you're just going to be like, eh, uh, <laughs> looking at the defensive alignment. But yeah. Yeah, any way you could prevent the amount of outfield innings for Andrew Vaughn at this point would be the, the best way to go. Maybe the answer is Andrew Vaughn is my preference, no matter if it's a righty or a left-handed pitcher for the White Sox. But Garbage, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Joe. <laughs> I love this question. Joe's asking, how is it even possible that this team Built to slug is going to finish the season with nobody over 20 home runs or 80 RBIs. Well, I think we talked about, well, maybe not to the extent of 20 home runs because that is staggering no matter what, but when it comes to like the opposite field power and just that not being rewarded, I think that's the simplest reason along, along with health. 
as to why the White Sox are just hitting far fewer homers than anybody could have ever imagined. But when it comes to RBIs, that's also an interesting thing just because that makes me think back to Tim Anderson and just it's easy to, I guess, overlook his absence just because, like we talked about, like his numbers were Alcides Escobar-like for a very long time coming back from the groin injury. He wasn't really himself uh, after his first IL stint. And so it's a little bit easy to downplay it, you know, the, the effect of his absence and say like, well, Elvis Andrews is here between him and Garcia. Maybe Gonzalez gets hot. Like they can maybe replicate what he was doing. But I think that, you know, maybe makes it a bit too easy to overlook what Anderson, you know, did before the groin injury and how much like his impact of getting on base, being able to take extra bases, steal a bag, maximize his time on the base paths affects everything happening after him in terms of like the RBI count. Like when it comes to the RBI count and Jose Abreu leading the league as he did for years, like it's because Anderson could get on base and run, you know, even if he did get on base in weird ways, like even Larry Garcia, he wasn't great at getting on base, but he did okay. And like he could maximize his time on base as well. And I think, you know, just happened to be some cases where, you know, Braves hits followed Garcia's hits. So, you know, they, they maximize that 300 on base percentage that Garcia had. But when you just see what the White Sox have right now and like, you know, Pollock is their best bet, but he's not really doing anything. It's all singles. Nobody can really steal a base once they get to first. Uh, you have a really slow one through five and nobody can get two bases at a time, really. I think it just all breaks down. And I think we're just seeing this offense that just, um, we talked about it early in the season saying like Luis Roberts and Tim Anderson are the key to making this offense seem very simple. Like when they're getting on base, when they're running as fast as they can, when they're hitting the ball over the fence on occasion, like uh, everything loosens up. And the opposite is when Robert's not available, when Anderson's not available, when they are available, but, but hurts and not running, not allowed to run hard when they're just, uh, both on base percentages are below 300 or Anderson's below 300 and Robert's not playing for a week. Like everything seizes up because there's just no way to create action otherwise. So I think it's worth, you know, considering, uh, as we go into the off season, you know, trying to figure out like, how many games can Tim Anderson play at his best if he's only good for like 110 games at his best? What's the plan B for generating that kind of activity at the top of the order to give RBI opportunities to the guys downstream? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer other than Luis Robert, stay healthy. I mean, that's the, that's the simple. Basically stay healthy. <laughs> Basically stay healthy. What's not helping in the counting stats here of trying to get someone to 20 home runs and eight RBIs this season. I thought, you know, August Abreu would have a much bigger impact, but we are seeing one of the more tamer, calmer August months for Jose Abreu in his career in the month of August. Maybe it's like he's kind of evolving with the age regression that he's very focused on getting on base, which is good. He's not selling out for power. He is accepting to hit line drives for singles, which is why his batting average is over 300. But we're not seeing a lot of home run power. He he could still, you know, hit a, a big double, which he did in, in the game against Cleveland and Shane Bieber. He had the RBI double to straightaway center field. But in 20 games so far in the month of August, I mean, Jose Abreu is hitting 342. That's awesome. 
He's got a 378 on base percentage. He's not walking much. But his slugging is only 447. He's only got four extra base hits so far this month. Two doubles and two homers. And he's only got nine RBIs. Uh, Yohan Makata and Eloy Jimenez uh, have double-digit RBIs this month. It's the it's the home runs and lack of RBIs for Abreu so far in August, uh, which is eye-opening. But as you mentioned, Jim, not, that really might be the reason of not having a healthy and productive Tim Anderson batting leadoff in front of Jose Abreu. But it's some, it is odd that so far in August that, you know, the batting average is there. Just we're not seeing a lot of power from Abreu. He's also grounded into five double plays in August. Hmm. So ground ball rate is ticking up a bit. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, somebody just, you know, when you look at his home run totals monthly, two in April, three in May, four in June, three in July, two in August. Like there just has not been that classic Jose Abreu heater that he gets on that, uh, you know, seven homers in three weeks, you know, that just puts the offense on his back. Like, you know, and you know, we talked about before he, he shouldn't like he's 35. He's at the end of his contract. You know, he's performing this well at the end of his deal. Like we should be thankful. He's leading the American league in hits. Like that's new. The walk rate is new. Like he's doing, he's aged and evolved in a cool way. Um, but there's just nobody there to take the baton. And so it feels disappointing, even if if we talked about Abreu and you know three years ago leading the league in hits in 2022 and batting 308 with a 140 OPS plus, like that would be awesome. And you know the just it that just you know his approach requires him to have teammates who can do more, and they aren't. And so that's why just the off another reason, and I think he's least culpable both because of his production and because of. The guy should be allowed to age. It's the twenty-somethings not delivering that are, that are sinking this offense. Like Abreu's, you know, if you're counting on August Abreu to bail out everything, it's just that's a hard way to live. Well, it's a hard. It's hard to watch the White Sox offense lately. So, hopefully, Jose Abreu can find some home runs before the end of the month, so he can get to twenty because he still leads the team in homers. And uh, he has some big RBI days, so he is the one that reaches eighty RBIs, but. Joe, good question. Thank you so much for asking it. And thank you to all of our Patreon supporters that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. Again, if you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, sign up to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they're the first ones to get it. Monthly plans start at just $2 to help support us, or you could also save more money by signing up with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. And that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.